You're listening to Asia Centric from Bloomberg Intelligence, the podcast that pulls back the curtain on global business so you can invest better across the Pacific Rim. I'm Tom Corbett in Hong Kong. And I'm John Lee. China's economy is sputtering. As COVID zero restrictions fell away, global investors held their breath, expecting a power packed economic rebound. But so far, China's comeback from COVID hasn't lived up to the hype. It's a different story in the U.S., where the economy shows surprising resilience, leaving the door open for higher rates. But that's not stopping investors from getting excited over the promise of productivity from artificial intelligence. What does this mean for the dollar, the renminbi, and other Asian currencies? And what risks lurk in South Korea's financial sector? Let's bring in Alvin Tan, head of Asia Currency Strategy with RBC Capital Markets, and Rena Kwok, Asia Financial's credit analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Both join us from Singapore. Hi, Alvin. In June, we had the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell state that the fight with inflation has a long way to go, and indicated two more rate hikes. On the other hand, China just cut interest rates by ten basis points. How do these actions frame your currency view? Well, on the one hand, of course,、uh, that implies that the interest rate differential between China and, and the U.S. is widening, of course, and that is a fundamental contributor to the renminbi's、uh, continued appreciation.、Uh, on the other hand, we also know—I mean, of course, it's lengthened—but we also know that the Fed is、uh, approaching the end of its、um, tightening cycle. But at this point, the interest rate differential widening between China and U.S.、Um, is still the primary factor, I think,、uh, driving dollar CNY higher. And what's your view of the U.S. dollar going forward versus the Asian currencies? Well, we do think that the、um, U.S. dollar is、um, peaking on a cyclical basis, but、uh, this, this is quite a drawn-out process. I mean, if you look at historically, the peaks in the dollar tends to be drawn out for for many months, or sometimes even years, in fact. And indeed,、uh, euro dollar at ninety-five cents、uh, last autumn probably marked the absolute peak of the U.S. dollar for this cycle. But of course, the U.S. dollar has not、uh, plunged from there. So again, it is a peaking process. It's going to be a drawn-out process, and、um, we do think there is still room for the U.S. dollar to gain some ground, at least、uh, towards、uh, year-end, particularly against the likes of、uh, the Japanese yen and also against you know the renminbi. But it is a peaking process, and we we do foresee that the U.S. dollar、uh, will likely commence a more steady decline、uh, probably next year. Alvin, as we speak, we are at the doorstep of the second half of 2023. Let's take a look forward, if we can. Lots of factors influencing the market. We've got interest rates.、Uh, we've got recession risk. We've got this productivity leap that's being promised by AI, or at least you know that's the general sense. What are going to be the dominant themes, the prevailing narratives going into the second half of 2023? For certain Asian currencies, this、uh, AI narrative is quite important, particularly for the likes of the Korean won, and to a lesser extent, Taiwan dollar. In fact, we've already seen, for example, Samsung Electronics uh, Hynix uh, uh, share prices at the highest level since spring of last year, and that has actually helped the Korean won、uh, diverge from the、uh, renminbi's、uh, depreciation trend over the past、uh, two months or so.、Uh, the Korean won has done relatively well actually quarter date. So I think this will be a contributor to some of the Asian currencies outperforming within the Asian currency conflicts. 
Now, at a broader level, I think we're also beginning to see that the export slump in Asia is bottoming out. You can see that in the latest trade statistics, the advanced trade statistics of Korea. No doubt, uh, trade is still negative on a year-on-year -year basis. Exports growth in particular is still negative on a year-on-year -year basis. But I think the bottoming process is happening. And so going forward, I think this AI and, and at a broader level, the um, gradual ending of the export slump can support certain Asian currencies going forward. I think what's quite interesting also is that um, although, of course, China's uh, growth rate, growth momentum has disappointed recently, I think, though, that uh, as the disappointment piles up on China's part, the chances of more stimulus measures, particularly from the fiscal side, is actually growing. So this possibility of further stimulus out of China, particularly again from the fiscal side, is going to help end the Roman beast uh, depreciation trend, particularly against the US dollar at some point in the second half of the year. But at this point, not yet, because we're still seeing that the government in Beijing appears uh, reluctant to really roll out any decisive stimulus measures, particularly on the fiscal side. Alvin, what decisive measures does the China authorities need to implement to appease global investors? You know, recently we had a 10 basis point cut. That obviously was enough. Can you just give us some more details? Yes, I think that um, the Chinese economy currently is suffering from lack of demand and frankly, lack of confidence on the part of households and, and investors to, to suspend. And, and so, you know, making the price of credit cheaper perhaps you know, only helps in the margin. It's not going to solve the underlying lack of demand problem. I think that we definitely need more decisive fiscal measures. For example, one reason why households have been so cautious in China, because China actually never had the fiscal handouts that was very common in developed countries during the pandemic at all. So households are basically trying to repair balance sheets currently. And so they've been cautious in their spending, cautious in their borrowing. And as a result, of course, uh, that is uh, hurting internal demand in the economy. So I think you need a fiscal measure, just as what happened in many developed countries during the pandemic itself. Like cash handouts, basically, right? Yeah. Uh, well, that is one extreme of it, of course. Uh, perhaps you know, um, more moderate fiscal policies uh, would be the likes of more government spending, basically, on infrastructure, perhaps, uh, on, on more government projects. Yes. Let's take a deeper dive into China. When China emerged from COVID zero, there was a lot of, for lack of a better word, fanfare, optimism over its growth prospects. That light appears to have dimmed a bit. What do you see going forward? And has China's, shall we say, stumble out of the gate surprised you? First of all, yes, certainly the growth momentum has petered out a lot faster than I thought it would. But on the other hand, I know because in fact, if you try to remember back, to recall back to what happened in March when the government set its growth target, they only set the growth target at, quote, around 5%. So actually, it was quite a modest growth target. And again, if you look at China's economic policies just before the pivot away from COVID at the beginning of reopening, there were no particularly very large stimulus measures being put in place. So I think that you know, if one were expecting China to grow something like 6 7%, I think that was definitely misguided in that sense, yes. What do you think the authorities can do regarding China's beleaguered property sector? Well, but that's the other part where in recent weeks, I would say there's been quite a bit of disappointment because there's a lot of news out. In fact, Bloomberg did the reporting about China was on the verge, I think the state council, the cabinet was on the verge of announcing various measures to support the property markets of just you know, reducing uh, mortgage requirements, reducing limits in second home ownership. 
But so far, it's been weeks now, we haven't gotten any details of any such policies. In particular, the state council meeting just over two weeks ago, you know, it was expected that something would emerge of the meeting. But instead, we just got more promises that more stimulus measures to particularly incite greater demand was forthcoming. So, so far, even now, uh, we haven't heard anything. And um, Premier Li, he mentioned again that uh, China was on course to meet 5% growth target, which is absolutely true. But that's because of base effects. The government appears to be continuing with a relatively modest growth target, and their actions speak louder, basically, than, than, than their words you know, promising further stimulus. I think that the market senses that there is a bit of foot dragging here in terms of rolling out more decisive stimulus measures in turn the economy around. So for China's currency, the CNY or the CNH, are you a bull or a bear? I would say uh, from here, I'm largely positive on the CNY, but that's like, let's say, taking an 18-24 month deal. I think that in the near term, definitely, the depreciation trend is a clear one. And it makes sense. In fact, if you think about it, the CNY has retained much of its gains uh, from mid-2020, from the bottom of the, the pandemic turbulence that we saw in markets. If you look at, for example, CNY against the Japanese yen, it is much, much higher. Or even CNY against Korean won, this is you know, close neighbors. So there is a good argument that the trade-weighted CNY can continue to move lower uh, simply because you know, China's economy is definitely underperforming and a uh, weaker currency is, again, another form of monetary easing. However, longer term, I am a bit more bullish on the CNY because, number one, China has a persistent current account surplus. It's, the current account surplus currently is still not 2% of GDP. So that's a fundamental support for the currency in the, in the longer term sense. And secondly, I think that with the um, depreciation that we've seen over the past year or so, I think it's hard to argue that the renminbi is expensive. Now, I think what one could say that it's falling into relatively cheap levels. So that is what uh, makes me a bit more bullish over the medium to longer term prospects. But certainly in the near term, the depreciation uh, pressures are clear. Alvin, right now, global investors are tiptoeing or treading cautiously around China. There are many reasons for that. What's it going to take for China to attract the attention and generate that global investor interest again? Is it going to be infrastructure spending? Is it going to be support for the property market? Or is this something that we're not considering? I think certainly more decisive measures to support the economy, particularly on the property sector, is going to be a part of it. And so to turn that around, essentially, we need to see a lessening of the pressures on the property sector, on the property developers. And in fact, part of it comes from government policies to restrict credit provision to highly indebted developers. So, so I think we definitely need some easing on those policies. And also beyond that, I think part of the reason why foreign investors have become more wary of China lately is, of course, you know, that stems from the regulatory crackdown. Um, they, of course, started with ants one and two years ago and, you know, engulfed the education and the tutoring sectors, for example. So I think a clearer regulatory regime, a more transparent policymaking regime in terms of how the government intends to deal with particular sectors of the economy and that it tends to ease this uh, regular crackdown, I think that's, that will be important for foreign investors. Alvin, you're sitting in Singapore, and I noticed that you haven't mentioned anything about Southeast Asian currencies. What's your view there? 
Um, I've been quite positive on the Indonesian rupiah, and I continue to be positive on the Indonesian rupiah. And one reason is that uh, partly it is a carry trade. I think we're seeing that volatility in actually EM bonds and EM currencies um, have fallen quite significantly over the course of this year. So I think Indonesia is attractive from that point of view. I think that definitely bodes well for Indonesia's growth and economic prospects. And the other one is, I do think that the Singapore dollar, for example, um, has actually done quite well over the past uh, two years or so. Uh, and that's because the monetary authority of Singapore has tightened policies quite significantly over the course of the past uh, two years. Now, the, of course, the MES has already stopped. Um, I think it's definitely paused. This tightening cycle is over. However, the appreciation settings on the Singapore dollar that were put in place during the course of the tightening remains in place. And so the Singapore dollar, I think, can continue to do well with those appreciation settings in place, driving it forward modestly, but nonetheless, I think that will help it hold its gains of the past two years well. Alvin, commercial real estate, especially the office segment, is a big player in developed economies, especially in Asia. Right now, there are some headwinds. Developers are finding it difficult to refinance, of course, due to the higher interest rates. We've got high vacancy rates. You're seeing it here in Hong Kong, people working from home. Can you assess how big a risk is at stake here with commercial real estate? And how does Asia's situation compare to the rest of the world? I think um, when you talk about this, it, it's important to differentiate uh, between the various countries. Certainly in the commercial senses of Hong Kong and, and Singapore, it is um, an issue that looms large. But it, in places such as Indonesia, to a lesser extent, but still uh, Malaysia, or even India for that matter, I don't think it's a particularly um, large problem, on the macro level at least, for the economy. And I think uh, the Southeast Asian banks are actually quite relatively well capitalized in that sense. And which should help them weather these problems, uh, in my view. But certainly in the more urban, commercial-oriented centers of Hong Kong in particular, and also Singapore, it is likely to be a big question mark going forward. I think it's a good time to bring in Rena into this discussion. Earlier this year, we seemed to be on the precipice of a global banking crisis. We had US regional banks fail, especially SVP. Uh, we also, you know, across the pond, we had Credit Suisse fail in Europe. Are you surprised at how well Asian banks have weathered the storm, Rina? Thanks for having me, John. So how we actually look at why Asian banks seems to be better placed but not insulated from the global banking crisis that we have seen in March. Now, a couple of credit strengths that we see for the Asian banks. The first thing is most of the major Asian banks, they have big capital cushions that allows them to actually cushion uh, what we call the credit losses, potential credit losses in their books. Now, the second thing is that healthy liquidity. Uh, most of the major banks' liquidity profiles are likely to remain healthy this year, despite the elevated funding costs. And uh, it seems unlikely to see the similar kind of deposit flight that we see in SVB, SVC that for Asian banks. Now, the third thing is that as we look for most of the major Asian banks, they've actually shored up preemptive provisions uh, since the pandemic to cushion their books. So that helps to actually cushion potential loan slippages should you know, macro headwinds worsen. Rena Kwok, you've written quite a bit about Korean banks. From your perch there in Singapore, when you stand out and you gaze across Asia, does Korea stand out in terms of risk to its financial center, for better or for worse? 
as we turn our focus to the South Korean financial sector, a couple of risks to watch. Um, you know, the whole economy has elevated household debt, um, and of course, we are facing interrising interest rates. So, in terms of mortgage defaults and credit card defaults, uh, we believe they could be manageable for the financial sector in South Korea this year, just because the income and the employment conditions continue to be resilient despite the macro headwinds that we see in South Korea. But what is more important is really the non-bank financial institutions, what we call the MBFIs, increasing liquidity risk amid the elevated interest rate as well as their riskier project financing exposures seems to be a bigger risk to watch this year. And Rita, Korean households are also amongst the most indebted in the world, right? Yes, so uh, if I may just put, you know, how do we think about the mortgages default in South Korea, given that we have really elevated levels of household debt in South Korea, we believe that the mortgages default amid the rising interest rate could be manageable as the most, I would say, one of the crucial factors such as employment uh, continues to be resilient. The unemployment rate in South Korea in May um, was about 2.7%. Now, risks are also offset by the macroprudential measures we have in place in South Korea to actually avoid a hard landing of the property market. And most of the major South Korean banks, they have ample provisions. So, Rene, can I draw analogies? It sounds like the big Korean banks are okay, but the and similar to the U.S. banks, the big ones are okay, but the smaller ones in the U.S. is regional banks in Korea. It sounds like it's the MBFIs. They're the ones at risk. Yes, a couple of items to watch for the MBFI. Firstly, is the liquidity risk. Um, you know, especially the security companies, the credit specialized financial companies, as well as the mutual saving banks. Uh, as we enter into elevated interest rate, market volatility, and a struggling property sector. Now, as of third quarter last year what we call the regulatory liquidity coverage ratio were well above the regulatory requirements for the MBFIs. Their ratios have actually fallen sharply versus the 2019 levels. And particularly, if we look into the securities companies as well as the credit specialized financial companies, they're actually very vulnerable to market cheaters just because they have a huge reliance on short-term wholesale funding. And Rena Kwok, what about Korean banks' credit default swaps? What are they doing now? What's your outlook? So if we take a look at the, what we call the CDS performance of the big four South Korean banks for the five-year dollar senior CDS, we believe they could actually remain modestly higher than the 2021 level this year. And this is because um, you know, the economy in South Korea is facing a rising headwinds. Right? The South Korean economy could be hurt by the weak exports amid the slowing global growth, uh, the cumulative transformation effects of the tightening by the central bank last year, as well as the elevated household debt as and the growing fears of the financial institutions' project financing exposures. Now, if we look closely into the major South Korean banks, uh, Kunming Bank, five-year senior CDS, might remain tight against its peers just due to its stronger capital position as well as the bigger systemic importance. Alvin, I'd love to bring you back on. What could go wrong with your thesis? Is there any black swan events that you're looking out for? Well, I suppose... Um the geopolitical aspect is one black swan that the thought people are worried about. And beyond this, as Rita mentioned, the um, financial sector is a concern, particularly in the case of Korea. As we've seen, of course, in the United States, when you have rising interest rates, uh, roughly rising from near zero levels, uh, bad things uh, can happen. Things can break in the economy. So that's something definitely watch about. And particularly when you have a situation where China is a big giant in the Asia-Pacific uh, region, 
is uh, slowing down. Uh, that's definitely a risk. Uh, the higher rates in the non-Chinese economy somehow you know, react with a slowing demand from China to create a really, really negative uh, situation in the region. Um, so definitely that's something that bears uh, watching too, yes. Having your eye, Alvin Tan, on Asia's economy, let's say you could pull over Jerome Powell and tell him a few words, whisper something in his ear about interest rates, maybe it's a piece of advice. What would you tell Jerome Powell, the U.S. Fed chairman? I would say he has to be careful about um, moving rates uh, a lot higher from here. But frankly, that's something that the Fed is very concerned about. They've been talking about the banking sector and the risk to the banking sector for a few months now. When you have situations where interest rates are high and rising, when U.S. Treasuries are offering over 4% risk-free returns, <laughs> that's going to cause pressure on the banking sector. It's, it's, it's just, you know, it's quite straightforward. It's fundamentally, it will cause pressure on the banking sector. So that's something the, the Fed needs to keep a very close eye on. Sounds to me like you're convinced the Fed is just about where it needs to be on rates. I think it definitely makes sense that the Fed has to keep rates where they are. And I'll call this, in fact, that they'll have one more hike, but they'll, they'll stop that. But they'll keep the rates there you know, until well into next year. But it makes sense because the U.S. economy, in fact, is doing relatively well. If you look at the macro indicators, you look at unemployment level, you look at various measures, particularly the housing market appears to be heating up again. It's shown a lot of resilience, hasn't it? Yes, absolutely. The housing market in the U.S. has surprised a lot of people by its resilience. And because of this, um, and the fact that inflation remains an issue, and so the Fed has to keep rates uh, where they are for a lot longer. Adding on my end, probably just want to talk about how the liquidity risk compared for Singapore versus the big four of Korean banks. Because the reason why I said this, um, the regulator recently revised the LCR requirements for the Korean banks to be 95% from 92%, effective from July to end of December uh, this year. So we just wanted to point it out, uh, while we think the big four uh, Korean banks' liquidity is still healthy, they are comparatively much weaker than similar rated Singapore banks. Okay, great. great. Thanks, Rena. Our guests have been Alvin Tan of RBC Capital Markets and Rena Kwok, Asia Financials Credit Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. It's been a wide-ranging conversation on Korea, China, interest rates, and almost everything in between. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Tom Corbett in Hong Kong. And I'm John Lee. This podcast was edited by Clara Chen, and you've been listening to the Asia-Centric Podcast. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.